Forget sunburns. I'm worried about the safety of my digital spank bank. I'm Joe Fulgham. Oh, those dashed coronal mass ejections. I'm Torin Atkinson. One thing I know about the Nick Cage movie knowing, don't go see it. I'm Ian O'Neill. We're going to stare down the barrel of the sun gun. I'm Kevin Leeson, and this is Caustic Soda! All right, the word origin of sun uh, is the same as the word origin of sol, S-O-L, as you might hear in words like solar system or solar storm. I am faking surprise. Or solar (laughs) physicist. Right, or Cirque du Soleil. (laughs) Yes, exactly, for the Uh French. And uh, I believe we may have a solar physicist with us in the the virtual studio, Dr. Ian O'Neill. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Very well. We're very excited to have you on board for this uh, episode of The Sun. So, Doc, what uh, is traditional here is where I ask you for your bona fides. What uh, makes you a sun pro? Well, that's the thing. I I used to be a sun pro. Uh, Now I'm more of a media space pro. But back in 2006, I got my PhD in solar physics. So basically, I was an expert on the sun's corona or the sun's atmosphere. And I was basically researching as to why it was so hot. And this was, I was actually doing the research in Aberystwyth University in Wales. So it's probably one place where you wouldn't ever see the sun. So I thought that was quite interesting. I had way too many of the sun's coronas on a beach in Mexico one time. Sol comes from Sawel, S-A-E-W-E-L, pre-Indo-European word for to shine. Mm. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. And of course, uh, Greek Helios is uh, the sun. Right, sure. Helios. Mm-hmm. And the phobia of the sun? Heliophobia. Uh, so- Correct. Heliophobia. Oh, heliophobia. Yes. Now, the sun is a yellow dwarf star at the center of the solar system. It certainly is. Classification based on spectral class is G2V. Absolutely. What does that mean exactly? It's purely based on the, the amount of light that the sun emits. Oh, okay. Our sun is just a fairly average star. And it comes around about halfway down the scale of, of stars. So it's, it's an average star. So what would be like a, a another number that would be bad for us, like not enough light or too much like sunshine? Oh, anything other than the one we've got. Oh, really? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> we evolved in the sun's orbit. So anything dimmer, uh, the, the Earth would freeze. And anything you know brighter, uh, we'd all have very bad sunburns. So really, you know, anything other than what we've got is a problem. Right, oh. that's, we we exist in what's uh, or our our planet is in what we call the Goldilocks zone. Is that the Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone for our solar system? Right, and it just so happens we're in the middle of it. Surprise, surprise! This sun is too hot. <laughs> this, this sun, sun is, is too cold. cold. This, this sun, sun is just right. <laughs> the diameter of the sun is about one million three hundred ninety-two thousand kilometers, about one hundred nine times that of the Earth. Last mm-hmm. time I measured it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a hell of a tape measure. The mass is 330,000 times that of the Earth and accounts for about 99.86% of the total mass of the solar system. What? I think that's what shocks everybody the most. You know, the sun is really the main source of mass in our solar system. And what's more, it's the only source of energy. Right. And this is why we don't call it the Earther system. (laughs) 
It's yeah. the solar system. <laughs> they it used wins. to call the Earther system back before the Renaissance, though. That's right. And the chemical composition, about three-quarters of the sun's mass consists of hydrogen, while the rest is mostly helium. The remainder, 1.7%, which nonetheless equals about 5,600 times the mass of Earth, consists of heavier elements including oxygen, carbon, neon, and iron. So hold on. If I take a big hit off of this, my voice will get nice and squeaky. Is that... Uh, the helium? Yeah. If you survive the temperatures. <laughs> I, I just get a really long, long metal straw. That's right. It'll cool down by the time it reaches you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All that space and whatnot. Oh. This is sun. something that Galactus might do. Yeah. If you're familiar. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's Galactus' party trick. Bow down before me, Earth creatures. I have consumed your sun. Now I will eat your planet. <laughs> the age of the sun 4.57 billion years uh, sounds pretty good to me yeah <laughs> by by memory surface no. temperature is 5778 degrees kelvin ah but surface temperature that's that's where a lot of confusion comes in you know oh. where is the sun's surface oh. Oh. all right so you think about that Okay. <laughs> okay, my brain gonna, hurts now. I'm gonna How say, you think about it I'm going to say when I look at a picture of the sun, it's the edge of where it's yellow and reddish. Uh, is that <laughs> with your own eyes? Uh, that's with oh. pictures that I've seen on the internet. Ah, but there's several different filters you can see the sun through. Oh. So it depends on which filter you're looking at. Okay. Well, what, Dardian, why don't you tell us where you think the surface of the sun is? <laughs> yeah, Mr. And Fancy then, Pants. And then we will decide whether we agree with you or not. Yeah, okay. Mr. PhD. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if you're right. Yeah, let's earn let's earn the D on that PhD right now. I, I think what he means is we'll compare your answer to Wikipedia, because that's the only <laughs> thing that we know. Damn, you're ahead of me. you got Wikipedia open. I can't make any mistakes now. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the sun's surface, people refer to it as the sun's surface because that's what you see generally in optical light. And we like things in optical light because that's what our eyes can see. So when you get a nice picture of the sun, it's basically the disk of the sun. But that is called the photosphere. And that's where most of the um, optical light is generated. It's basically a ball of hot gas almost and even if you could survive say all the temperatures and all the other horrible things going on there there's there's no real solid surface to stand on it's just where that gas gets thinner and thinner and thinner at some point you have to say this is surface and this is not surface is that right absolutely yeah and if you imagine the um sun surface is this bubbling cauldron of plasma and plasma isn't something we come across in our daily experience but it's n- very nasty stuff right. um and it's usually very hot as you said the surface of the sun is what six thousand degrees it's it's very very hot but the really really interesting thing is at the photosphere that is really the minimum temperature of the sun because if you go further into space which is kind of counterintuitive. It makes your brain kind of hurt because it's like a, the, the atmosphere above the sun's surface or the photosphere actually gets hotter. So it gets hotter the further away you go from the sun. So the corona oh. is actually millions of degrees. You mean it doesn't work just like a light bulb when I touch it? <laughs> if you had a light bulb, a crazy, crazy light bulb, if you had a light bulb that you had to, you, you're measuring the temperature of the surface of the light bulb and it comes in at, say, 500 degrees, and then you measure the air around it, and it's like 10,000 degrees. That makes no sense. You're basically burning the room down with this cool light bulb. Yeah, but that, yeah, is, yeah. That, that, that was why I was funded to do my research so long, because really physicists don't really understand why this is the case, even though there are some really, really cool 
bits of news about that recently, but I can always discuss that later. Oh, but cool. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, a, it's an exciting field. It's like, you know, why is the sun's atmosphere so hot? And people turn around to you and say, well, it's the sun, dummy. That's really <laughs> And how much difference, like, what's the difference between the surface of the sun and past the sun in terms of temperature? Like, how much hotter, like, at times 2, times 10? Um, yeah, 6,000 degrees Kelvin on the surface of the sun and in the area that I was working in, which is the lower corona, where you see all these beautiful coronal loops. If you see any of those really, really fancy pictures of the sun, you'll see these massive loops of um, radiating um, plasma. And that's basically the magnetic field of the sun pushing through the surface or through the photosphere. And it carries this plasma high, almost like a hose pipe. It drags this plasma up high into the atmosphere and it gets heated by some unknown mechanism. And you're talking, I mean, it can get up to... In flaring regions on the sun, you're probably talking about 10 million Kelvin. God. So you're going from 6,000 to 10 million. To millions. <laughs> wow. I can't even do that quick math. Like, I don't even know what the thousands of times it is. Well, at these, at, oh, well, a thousand times a thousand is a million, right? But at these numbers, the difference between Kelvin and Celsius is pretty negligible because yeah. zero Kelvin is about 225 or something, negative 225. So just subtract yeah. 225 off of the kelvin and that's celsius but 6000 degrees to 10 million degrees no matter which scale you're using that's a big change right like the heating mechanism of its atmosphere that is still a big mystery we got some ideas but we can't exactly go in there and take a measurement because it's too hot so you have to use these you know amazing space observatories to do so no matter how which way you put it it's a weird weird place and it's something that's completely different to our daily experience that we just don't understand it could be a dude in a chariot right at the center of it all just like the greeks thought right that's possible we don't know know. big fiery chariot yeah you can't can't prove it's not (laughs) (laughs) well let's talk about the layers of the sun then all right okay uh from the center you have the core Mm -hmm. this Uh is where hydrogen fuses into helium now, is that where we send our astronauts to reboot the sun? <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> right. I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, yeah that would be the place you'd send them, I would have thought. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, but the interesting thing about the core, it's burning through like five, is it 500 million tons of hydrogen every second. That's, That's a lot of burning. That is yeah. a lot. It's going to hit peak hydrogen soon. And then, you know, <laughs> then I think be? technically we are a peak hydrogen. Oh, oh, okay. oh my goodness. It's all downhill yeah. from here. Yeah, it's a middle-aged star. So, you know, it's been going for, what, uh, 4.5 billion years. It's probably got another 4.5 to go. I should have invested in the sun when I had a chance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you've got the radiative zone after that. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the radiative zone, that's basically the region that energy finds it very, very easy to travel from the core okay. to towards the surface of the sun. And basically it only gets stopped by the convective zone. The convective zone. Yes, layer number three. Energy moves through rising and falling cells of gas in the convective zone. Oh, this, yeah. is, this is where you can cook those turkeys like twice as fast. In the convective zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Space turkeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the photosphere, which we mentioned yes. as more or less the sun's visible surface as we understand it. And it's the part that we have lots of pictures of, and it's called the photosphere. How uncreative. Mm-hmm. And then of the chromosphere. The chromosphere. That's a fun sphere. There's a lot of fun going in there. That's the party sphere? That's the party. That is definitely the party sphere because those wonderful loops of of plasma that Mm -hmm. you see on the surface of the sun, that's where they are rooted and where the plasma is accelerated. So there's a lot of crazy dynamics going on there. And then, of course, the corona, which we discussed. Mm -hmm. And then 
if we want to count it as a, a layer of the sun, the heliosphere. Um, I'd say that is the um, sphere of influence of the sun. Right. So it's almost it's almost like the atmosphere of the sun, if you like. I mean, I always find it a bit strange when people say, you know, the corona is the atmosphere, and that is technically correct. But, you know, the heliosphere is the extended atmosphere of the sun, and that goes on for a long, long way. It's like the um, Voyager space probes uh, that were launched in the 1970s. They're only just leaving the sphere of influence of the sun which is incredible. It's taken 30, nearly 40 years to get there. And they're going fast. Very, very. The fastest man-made objects, I think. And they're heading like straight towards the sun? No, they're heading away from the sun. Oh. Yeah, they're they're jetting away oh. at super speed. We're in the heli... The Earth is in the yes, heliosphere. absolutely. Yeah, we are embedded in it. I mean, the um, this is this is another thing that makes me laugh about um, doomsday theorists when they say, you know, the sun's going to unleash this crazy solar flare and it's going to wipe out all life on earth it's like well life has evolved on this planet and the planet has evolved within the sphere of influence of the sun right. since forever um so if not forever 4.5 billion <laughs> all right yeah you're right i uh, totally had to correct the scientist yes that's forever in dog years yeah. <laughs> our entire existence has evolved within the sphere of the sun so all the stuff that is thrown at us um, we've kind of got through it. And as far as we can tell, life has pretty much, you know, evolved pretty nicely within the sphere of the sun. So I don't see when the sun's going to unleash uh, one of these right. fabled killer solar flares. It's just not going to happen. Well, we'll talk about that yes. in our yes. hypothetical yeah. section. <laughs> <laughs> the hypothetical doomsday section. Nice. I'll step away from that topic. <laughs> so the heliosphere created by the solar wind, a combination of electrically charged particles and magnetic fields that emanate uh, more than a million miles an hour from the sun. Yes. Are you guys ready for the pop quiz? All right. Now, the first one we already actually mentioned, plasma. Okay. Which is uh, ionized gas that conducts electricity and is affected by magnetic fields. Mm -hmm. The next one is coronal hole. Coronal <clears throat> hole. Coronal mm -hmm. hole. That's my mouth when there's coronas go down beach. my gullet on that <laughs> beach. You gotta in put Mexico. this corona in the coronal hole. Well, yeah, that's right. But what I said earlier about looking at the sun through different filters, there's some filters that you can actually see the corona. So you can actually see the light being generated in the solar atmosphere. Right. And you'll notice on some of these fantastic images we've now got of the sun, you'll see these black areas. And those black areas correspond to coronal holes. And basically, they are regions of open field lines. So rather than these wonderful loops of plasma going around and, you know, around in these wonderful arcs off the surface of the sun, these field lines have opened. So they basically allowed plasma to escape into space. So it looks a lot cooler, but that's also regions. It's, it's usually um, pointed to as the region where the solar wind begins. It's basically open field lines that releases plasma into space. So is that like the vacuum where the plasma just left from? Is that like, an analogy? And do, those, do those holes stay open or do they open and close all the time? Oh, it's very dynamic. So, uh, so active regions on the sun are generally regions where you get a lot of um, a lot of flaring activity, and that's usually um, corresponding to like closed magnetic field lines, and that's where a plasma gets really, really intensely accelerated, and all kinds of crazy explosions happen in those regions. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, you've got these quiet sun regions mm. where not a lot's really going on. I mean, it's very because the field lines are open, it's releasing gas at a faster rate than it can be heated. So yes, the the plasma is still heated in these regions; it's still accelerated, but it's thinner. 
there's less gas there and it produces a hole. And that is really what, what a coronal hole is. It's, it's basically like the, the sun's gun is firing this plasma into space at one hell of a rate. It's the barrel of the sun gun. It is. And it's critical to understand these holes for space weather prediction. Space weather. I love that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Coronal mass ejection. Coronal mass ejection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You got a theory, Joe? I'm trying to make it uh, – I mean we're an explicit podcast – but I'm trying to uh, cool it down a bit, as it were. Uh, that, that's that's the place where the sun throws out all its garbage. Oh, yeah. Those active regions I was just talking about with these closed magnetic field lines, the pressure builds up so much and the magnetic conditions are such and all the – basically it's a perfect – combination of factors so you've got the plasma there you've got the magnetic pressure you've got a triggering source you know, maybe a flaring region so there's a lot of pressure building up in this one area in the in the active region and occasionally these these active regions can just blow off a bubble of plasma uh, it's all wrapped in a magnetic field and it'll just eject it into space it's basically the the mother of all explosions you don't get anything more powerful than this in the solar system it's like the, it's like um, the sun farting Exactly. It's exactly the same mechanism, but a magnetic fart. I was trying to figure out how it was going to work, and it's like the sun farting into this topic at some point, and you gave me a perfect opening. Do we know as much about the sun as we don't know about the sun? Like, where where does the tips – do we know so little about the sun that it might actually outweigh the There might be a little tiny man inside of it. Yeah. Working the gears like the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Uh, So far, we know that the sun obeys the laws of physics. That seems so like we, a pretty low bar to set, though, yeah, isn't it? Not, not magic, check. <laughs> the biggest conundrum that's really faced scientists for the last five decades, I mean, this is like a long-held mystery. It's why the solar atmosphere is so hot. And we're gradually understanding that by putting really, really advanced cameras into space. And that's the only way we can really do it. I mean, there's plans on the table to put solar, it's a probe called Solar Probe Plus, and it's a NASA mission to send a probe deep into the corona. This thing's going to go uh, through through the, um, the lower corona and actually take direct measurements of what's going on down there. Is it made of asbestos? Oh, it might be. <laughs> I like the fact that solar probe plus. Like that's like, oh, dude, it's plus. It's not just solar probe, yeah, probe it, anymore. Yeah. We're, not, we're not probing the solar. We're, we're probing the solar plus. But it's a shame because there wasn't uh, one before that. This is like the small size of Starbucks being called a large yeah, or whatever, exactly. and then grande and then venti. You have to like, make up words for the bigger, better ones. Yeah, so now Solar Pro, Pro Plus is the first one, so the next one is going to be Solar Probe Dub- Extra Double Plus. <laughs> because the original Solar Probe was cancelled and cancelled again, and then it was brought up and it was cancelled. So it's been a, it's had a long history of being cancelled, so they had to make this one sound extra special. Oh, I see. <laughs> to, just to get it through. Yeah, to buzz market it enough that people are like dude it's plus we gotta send it yeah and it's, it's just sad because we should have 10 of these missions going right. like every year in my opinion to actually understand how the solar atmosphere works yeah but you're but, a pretty yeah, hardcore say- sun nerd though yeah but if we get enough um you know um solar flare disaster movies then everyone else will be just as concerned and then we'll yeah you can justify it in the public's eyes can we somehow yeah spin this think of your children <laughs> <laughs> The sun is a nuclear explosion only 96 million kilometers away. <laughs> think of your children. I think that's kind of happening, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. We're getting a lot of um, solar, um, solar space weather guys, you know, that, that fantastic term, because um, we're trying to predict space weather. And space weather as a whole is like, you know, from the surface of the sun all the way to Earth. 
And anything that happens within this volume is kind of important to life on Earth. Not necessarily life on Earth. I mean, I'm not talking like killer solar flares here, but we're talking about the um, the technology we got in orbit, we, all the yeah. astronauts we have in space, and even our communications on the ground. Also, and this is the most scary thing that I don't, it's funny because people will buy anything within those disaster movies. You know, the sun, like on um, uh, what was that awful Nicolas Cage movie, um, Knowing. Spoiler alert. <laughs> We're going to talk about that later in the show. If you haven't seen it, don't bother. But uh, actually, I, I thought it was a good. I thought it was a good education about how directors' minds work, or at least <laughs> right. when 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 a science advisor isn't involved in the making of a movie, because that was a disaster on epic scales, <laughs> and I, I was in pain watching it. But it's a disaster film in more ways than one. Because I, I think people will buy those epic disasters in the movies right. because you can see it. Whereas the solar physicists got a real hard time saying, yeah, the sun's really scary. They say, oh, you're an expert on the sun. Why do you think it's scary? It's like, well, you can knock out our power grid and you don't have the internet. You know, how scary is that? And people are like, meh, you know, but Nicholas Cage said it can wipe out all life on earth. So it doesn't really matter. You know, we can get, we can get new pylons up. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think it's a constant battle for a solar physicist to actually relate their science to the public. You know what? I think you guys got to get a better naming crew because you got to come up with a better adjective than plus to <laughs> get to really capture the public's attention. You might be right. Next on the pop quiz list, uh, spicules. Spicules. S p i c u l e s. Yeah, it's, pr- it's properly pronounced spicules. Spicules. And uh, yeah. he's actually the uh, <laughs> the Roman god of. <laughs> Uh, yes. of, of movies about strife in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All right, Dr. Ian, what can you tell us about spicules? I, I don't want to give the scientific definition now. <laughs> can, we just, can we just stay at yours? I quite liked it because <laughs> mine's really boring. And basically they are just um, very small, I suppose, ribbons in a way. There's like denser plasma from the surface of the sun. And, they, and they, they're often forming around magnetic structures like coronal loops and, and you know, open field lines. They seem to be all over the surface of the sun. And spi- spicules, they think that they may be behind a lot of the coronal heating mechanisms mm. that may be generating heat in the, in the solar atmosphere. That sounds good enough to me. Like a spiky haircut, if you like. Oh, nice. right. So when a kid draws the sun and does the wavy lines coming off the yellow <laughs> circle, that's that's those. Those are the spicules. Those, those are the spicules. Yep. <laughs> that's that. All right. Magnetopause. Magnetopause. Okay, this is a mutant. Yeah. It's a cross between Magneto, the uh, supervillain, and uh, a, a poodle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's got dog hands and feet. Right. I was thinking more that it was Magneto who had come out as a furry. So oh, yeah, there you go. Oh, so I the same way. So he's wearing his little he's wearing his magneto outfit all in purple, but he's got fox ears and a fox tail and wolf paws. The other way to go is that this is the moment that brief moment in time where Magneto begins to soliloquy before he's taking somebody <laughs> magneto out. Magneto paws. Yeah. <laughs> See, I thought you guys were gonna go with uh Magneto's gotten so old that he doesn't have his powers anymore because he's going through Magneto paws. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> That's what I thought so you guys were going to go with it. I think yours is a winner, but I do like I do like all of them. Maybe it could be all three. Maybe he's a furry because <laughs> he has like lost his mind. Yeah. So in this dementia from magnetopause, he now wears furry clothing, and he constantly soliloquies before he like Six brings down the hurt uh-huh. on somebody. Let me tell you about mutant. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the magnetopause. That's the magnetopause. All right. So what actually is the magnetopause, Dr. Ian? Well, you've got the Earth, right? And the Earth has got a global magnetic field called the magnetosphere. And then you've got the sun <laughs> and it's firing space weather at us, you know, hurricane force winds. So the solar wind is hitting the magnetosphere. And the, the region where the solar wind hits the magnetosphere is where the magnetopause is. Right. So basically so it's, like it's the limits of the, it's the boundary between the two. Yeah. And all sorts of really awesome physics goes on in the magnetopause, the genesis of the, um, the Aurora or the Northern lights that we often see. You probably oh. got a better view up in Canada. So yeah. Right. Last one. Mm-hmm. Helmet streamer. <laughs> this is a German fella who is competing <laughs> in the Olympics. Uh, in rhythmic gymnastics. Oh, I see the Helmut streamer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Joe likes that one. <laughs> I do. I'm totally envisioning a massive muscular Aryan guy. <laughs> yeah. Like like uh, the tick size upper body definition doing like this uh, ballet with little streamer and just being so Aryan proud of himself. <laughs> yeah. It's basically these regions uh, of very, very long uh, loops of magnetism. So as I said earlier, you've got these active regions where you've got these very, very small scale uh, coronal loops. If you kind of take a step back and see the sun's disk as a whole, you'll see usually around um, equatorial regions during solar minimum. So when the sun is least active, you'll see these huge loops kind of stretching out into space and coming back down again. And they look like streamers. They're right. basically just streaming out in space. And the helmet streamer is just one such type of streamer where it kind of – it's almost like a loop but with a point on the end. Oh. So it's like, a, it's like a big drop of um, plasma and, and magnetism that's kind of stretched into, into a planetary space. So it it's nice. actually the sun doing rhythmic gymnastics. I was not too far off the mark. Exactly. Well, let's talk about the solar minimum and the solar maximum and the solar cycle. Sure. It's an 11-year cycle, more or less? More or less 11 years, and everybody gets very scared around this time of the solar cycle because we are approaching solar maximum. Um, and, of course, uh, the much-fabled year is upon us, 2012, mm-hmm. and, and we're seeing a lot of uh, coronal mass ejections and a lot of flares being kicked out. And that's purely because solar maximum is predicted to occur towards the end of 2012 right. and 2013. Um, <laughs> The Mayans didn't see this coming, trust me. <laughs> 2003 was a very exciting year for um, solar flares because that was the Halloween flare events where you had the solar maximum and then for some reason the sun kind of went down in activity and we thought, okay, it's all over, you know, the show's over, let's go home, you know, we'll wait until the next cycle. Um, but for some reason the sun just upticked again for no reason and just fired out a load of flares and right. it just shocked everybody. The, these flares and coronal mass ejections were even bigger than the ones at solar maximum. So as I say, I mean, the sun doesn't always abide by these strict rules. And this happened right around Halloween, you say? Yeah, basically it's the, the sun fired out a series of coronal mass ejections. A few of them hit Earth. And so we had amazing aurora. Um, and of course it put um, satellite operators into the toilet. They were kind of a bit scared by the whole thing. The 11-year cycle, that's just purely from an observational standpoint. Mm-hmm. We just know that for some reason, the sun gets active over an 11-year cycle. So, And we know some of the physics behind this. Because if you took the sun at solar minimum, the reason why it's so quiet is because the magnetic field is at a, at a very um, weak state. So it's like uh, there's, no, there's no stress on the magnetic field of the sun. But as the sun rotates, 
it rotates faster at its equator than at its poles. Ah. So if you if you imagine like a ball with elastic bands stretching from north to south, and you've got and the ball's um, equator is going faster, you'll notice that the elastic spins up. It actually gets tighter. Right. The tightening of that um, elastic band represents the magnetic field of the sun over the eleven year cycle. So at its most stressed state, you get all these coronal mass ejections and flares being kicked out by the kinked magnetic field that's under increasing pressure and this basically happens every 11 years and then it reaches a certain maximum and it's supposed to happen in 2013 and basically the whole polarity of the entire sun will flip so north becomes south and south become north and that ah. basically releases the pressure and the whole 11 year cycle starts again i wish that would happen in, uh, on the earth we could get some like <laughs> southern uh, you know hemisphere weather up here every do once you wish in a while. that i think that that switch would be really really bad <laughs> oh, i don't know the bikini weather every once in a while would be nice but that does happen on the earth it does happen yeah you do but get it's like magnetic. thousands and thousands of years isn't it yeah and it's chaotic there's no there's no pattern to it whereas the sun does have a pattern it's got an 11 year thereabouts but so. if it's chaotic good <laughs> right maybe not necessarily so bad so dr ian can you tell me the difference between a solar flare and a solar prominence is there a difference Oh yeah, this is a thing with you know, especially with the media, they they'll throw like a lot of uh, solar phenomena into one basket. I think the difference is solar flare are those like buttons that you wear on your suspenders, uh-huh. and solar prominence is when you're wearing a codpiece. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Does that it's equate? Just some being creative. <laughs> you got the solar flare, which is um, a scary event. It just explodes, and it, often like um, active regions on the sun. Um, you'll know that it's kind of looking kind of angry. So you know it's going to blow at oh, some yeah? point, but you don't know when. Mm. And so it's almost like waiting for that ticking bomb, but you don't know how long the fuse is. So often you'll have these sunspots that will rotate around with the sun. And the sunspots are also affected by the minimum and maximum? Yeah, yeah. At, ma- at solar maximum, you've got a maximum number of sunspots. And that's that's how we knew the sun was going through a maximum in the old days. Oh, okay. Before we had all these wonderful space, uh, space telescopes, right. mm. we would have observe the number of sunspots on the sun and the more sunspots the further along in the solar cycle the sun is okay so at solar maximum we get the most flares you also get the most sunspots yeah but these flares you can't really pr- predict them because you'll see this these sunspots coming around the sun and you don't know how long the fuse is you know that there's going to be a flare but when it blows when you actually see the the x-rays blasting from this from this point in the sun you've already been irradiated so it's like oh. <laughs> you know i can't predict that because it travels to see the light so you know if right. you see this explosion you, you need to somehow find a prediction mechanism before the thing right explodes. And, and if you're an astronaut that's that's not good i mean if you're hit by a x-class solar flare i mean you're not protected by the the sun the, the earth's atmosphere so you're kind of up there alone so you're going to have um, your lifetime dose of x-rays in a microsecond but there's ways and means of mitigating the worst that they can do. So say if you see, you know, this active region coming around, you kind of then, you know, get into your, whatever your equivalent space bunker would be, like in the center right. of the yeah. space station. You're generally protected. You don't have astronaut spacewalking during peak solar activity. It's just not sensible. Well, you just need a tinfoil hat, right? That works, right? T- tinfoil suit. Yeah. Since we're talking about astronauts, that there was a solar storm in 1972 during the solar maximum, and this happened during the Apollo program when astronauts were going back and forth to the moon regularly. 
And at the time, the crew of Apollo 16 had just returned to Earth in April while the crew of Apollo 17 was preparing for a moon landing in December. So luckily, everyone was safely on Earth when the sun went haywire. Mm -hmm. Uh, A large sunspot appeared on August 2nd, 1972. And for the next 10 days, it erupted again and again. A moonwalker caught in the August 1972 storm might have absorbed 400 rem. At that level of radiation dose, 50% of people exposed would die within 60 days without medical care. Oof. Duh. So there you go, kids. Don't become astronauts. <laughs> I don't know. I'll Scary take those odds. Like <laughs> to, to walk on the moon, the, the odds that there will be a flare and then 50% chance. Uh, no. Lesser two evils. Nah. Live a boring life or 50% chance of death if there's a solar flare while you're walking on the moon. <laughs> So anyway, back to solar flares versus solar prominences. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, flares, they're very scary because they, they happen instantly and you're, you're already radiated. So um, solar prominences are like these regions of dense plasma that reach high into the atmosphere of the sun. And often um, prominences, because they're so visible, the reason for that is because they're generally cooler than surrounding plasma. So they measure like a few tens of thousands of Kelvin compared to millions of degrees of the corona. This plasma is being pulled from the surface of the sun and pushed into the into the corona. They are often the sites of eruptions of coronal mass ejections. Oh. And this is where the similarity and the difference between flares and coronal mass ejections are often, you know, confused because people will throw coronal mass ejections in with flares as a solar flare. A coronal mass ejection is not a solar flare because we can see those things coming. It's like a freight train coming at you. Okay. They don't hit you instantly. You know, when they erupt, it can take um, anything from a day to a week to reach Earth. So you've got some forward warning. And that, but also they're the most damaging. I would argue that coronal mass ejections are more damaging than flares because so, coronal mass ejections can cause all sorts of problems for us on the ground. So, but you said a solar prominence is denser but cooler than a flare? Generally speaking, yeah. Okay, so, oh, they're, yes, jocks. Yes, so, so they're the jocks yeah. of the solar world. <laughs> Dense but cool. They're sort of hanging out, not doing much, looking very cool, yeah. So coronal mass ejections can move at different speeds, depending on, the, on their size or just how, just how they get shot out from the sun? Um, we don't really understand that. Again, mm. that's another mystery. It's, uh-huh. um, that's what we're trying to understand more and more of because if we could see a region of the sun that looks like it's ripe to explode with a coronal mass ejection, if we had forward warning about how energetic that explosion would be, we'd know how fast it would take, okay. you know, it would take to reach us. But to be honest, we only really measure its speed after the fact, after it's been launched. The subtitle for this show is going to have to be I'm not 100% sure, but it happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, science fiction question here. Mm-hmm. If I took Joe and teleported him into the center of the sun... What Is it would, like the eye of the storm? Would he survive? What would happen? <laughs> He'd be no more. I'd make this sound. <laughs> it'd, like, it'd be like a bug zapper. Those bug zappers that you have out on your... Yeah. On your Torn, on your don't porch. press that... <laughs> <laughs> But would there be any difference between if I did that and I teleported him to the uh, photosphere? No, same, same <laughs> difference. I mean... Complete nuclear destruction is complete nuclear destruction, I right. think. So. Right. Well, I haven't said that. I mean, if he was teleported into the core of the sun, at least you know that your bits and pieces will be used for good. Oh, you become fuel. You'll get burnt along with everything else in, the, in the, the nuclear fusion of the core of the sun, and a very little bit of your energy would warm 
the earth. This is some previously unknown to me definition of the word good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think it's time for pop quiz number two. Oh, oh. All right. This is um, the NOAA. That stands for National uh, Optical Association of Associationalologists. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association or Administration. Administration, right. Oceanic and Atmospheric? These sound like things that don't necessarily have anything to do with one another. Well, the sun is always shining on both of those. They have that in common. Oh, okay. So then it could be called everything the sun shines on administration. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but they don't really cover dogs' asses. Even though (laughs) the sun only shines on that once in a while. (laughs) They have a scale for space weather for radiation storms. Okay. So I, I will give you the effect. Okay. And you tell me where it lies on the scale. This is a scale between 1 and 5. 1 and 5. S1 okay. to S5. Okay. I will give you the first one. I'll give you minor. This is a 1? This is S1. S1. Okay. Minor. Biological effects, none. Satellite operations, none. Other systems, minor impacts on high-frequency radio in the polar region. Okay. So that's S1. So that's kind of like happening constantly. And this happens about 50 times per 11-year cycle. So oh. is there also kind of a zero then? Like if yeah. there's nothing going on, they just... They, it, if the sun goes away, then we'll <laughs> probably be an S0. Well, but, okay. If you said 50 times, it's every an S1, years. so that means S1 is not the, the default. Yeah, it's not just like that's what's happening every day. There's a, it's an actual this event. Is a, this is about occurrences. Right. I, we've, got, we've got a baseline. The biological effect of the next one that I want you to guess, mm-hmm. passengers and crew in commercial jets at high latitudes may receive low-level radiation exposure, mm. equivalent to approximately one chest X-ray. Mm, okay. okay. Uh, I'm going to go with a four. Three? I don't know how, where the five goes. Is, is the five Earth is engulfed? It, incinerated. In, yeah, that's... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say three. I used to know these scales. No, probably about three. This is the part of the show where we like to make our really educated people look foolish. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have things written on paper. Yeah, welcome to our world. (laughs) We bring we raise ourselves by bringing you down to our level. (laughs) So S three is the correct. Oh, yeah, Yeah. and that happens uh, about ten per cycle. Ten of those S three storms. So like once a year, year. eleven year cycle. So once a year. Okay. Next. So what Torrance saying? Don't fly in commercial airplanes ever. Ever. So start this year, we had um, we had a few big coronal mass ejections that hit the earth and they actually had to redirect flights away from the polar ice cap wow because of that problem Uh, ladies and gentlemen this is your captain speaking (laughs) we're gonna have to take a short rendezvous away from the polar ice cap on account of a coronal mass ejection from the sun which is going to bathe us all in deadly radiation (laughs) we'll be landing at Reykjavik but on the flip side Bjork will be welcoming us Next one. Small effects on high-frequency propagation through the polar regions and navigation at polar cap locations possibly affected. That's a two. Yeah, I'm going to go with two on that one, too. Two or three. Two. All right. I think I'm I'm starting to get a feel for where things are falling on the scale. Well, now we've only got two more left unless he doubles (laughs) up. Well, he double up. I might double up. He has been known to do tricky things like that. Satellite operations. Satellites may be rendered useless. Permanent damage to solar panels possible. Uh, but that satellites are in space, so... Yeah, so they're going to get more. It, yeah, so it could still be a three. Right. I, I think I'm going to go with three on this one, just because they just get a little bathed a little more. I agree with you, but I'm going to go with four anyway. Just to be a contrarian. Yeah, just to, so yeah. one of us is right. <laughs> four. 
five. Oh. oh. Mm. All right. So I guess five isn't the Earth is incinerated like we thought. Right. Maybe. Okay. It might be. That might be the That's thing. off the scale. Yeah. <laughs> it's off the scale. We need a new scale. I hate when on – let me just say this. On TV shows where they obviously have scales that go to infinity. Uh-huh. I mean, come on. We have scales that go to infinity now. Uh-huh. Like they're logarithmic and you just keep adding zeros on. Yeah, until pi you, and whatnot. Yeah. Nothing goes off the scale. Stop being a lazy writer. Make a new effing scale. <laughs> Pick a number. We, you have physicist friends, Mr. Writer. Just go, what would be an outrageous amount of more than multiple suns amount of energy for me to plug into this scene? Oh, how about this? Okay, use that number. Stop saying off the scale. <laughs> Next one. Unavoidable radiation hazard to astronauts on extravehicular activities. This is a four. I'm going to say it's a three because Ooh. astronauts are out extra absorbent. Uh, they're outside of our uh, uh, what's that called again? The, the uh, atmosphere. The, mm-hmm. I meant the part of the ozone. Isn't right, it the okay. ozone layer that bounces most of the stuff away? Am I Probably. right in that? Yes. I'm going with four. I'm going for five. Four. Ah, oh. I think I'm winning now. Uh, elevated radiation exposure to passengers and crew in commercial jets at high latitudes. Approximately 10 chest x-rays is possible in S4. Uh-huh. And those happen about three times per solar cycle. All right. So once every three uh, or four years. Three or four years. Last one. Unavoidable high radiation hazard to astronauts on EVA. High radiation exposure to passengers and crew in commercial jets at high latitudes, approximately 100 chest x-rays. Well, it's it's like a dead giveaway since the last one was four and it was ten. We're going to go with five. I think you're going to get a universal. That's the gimme. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred chest X-rays in a commercial airplane, like yeah. Yeah. that's when you start diverting people from the polar ice cap. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I would like to be diverted at ten, actually. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. one, you know, you get a chest X-ray, you kind of need it. It's not a big deal. Well, still, there's some corporate shill who's like, wait a minute, we're going to burn how much extra jet fuel? People can take ten X-rays, <laughs> yeah. but a hundred, <laughs> they see a lawsuit coming, so like, okay, all right, well, uh, even at ten, they see the lawsuit, but they go, but those lawsuits will be cheaper. Than, than the jet fuel. Than the jet fuel. <laughs> yeah. So it's worth it to right. put these people in this danger. They crunch the math. They do the numbers. I hate those people. <laughs> these S5 solar storms happen fewer than one per cycle. Oh, okay. So not even necessarily every 10 years. And you'll get a complete blackout of high-frequency communications possible through the polar regions, and position errors make navigation operations extremely difficult. Do you know when the last S5 was? We hit an S4 this year. Mm -hmm. I think we hit an S4 this year, or at least an S3. So, yeah, S5s are, like, silly rare. Now, there is another, a different kind of scale. There are two different scales. Is that not correct? There's one that has Xs and Cs and stuff in it? Well, you've got different scales. One scale is for the um, the power of a a flare. So, actually, it's measured on the surface of the sun. Oh, I see. Okay. And the most powerful ones of them are, like... X-class flares, and there was a massive, I think it was an X-9, which is like, this that was the biggest since the 2003 Halloween flares. Those happen, you know, probably once, twice, three times per cycle. With the Xs, because it usually goes X-1 to 10, depending on severity, but then they started adding more numbers on, because they ran out of the alphabet. <laughs> you know you're in trouble if it's an X-15. <laughs> We've also got geomagnetic scale, which is the basically the amount of impact it has on the global magnetic field which i think are a scale of g1 to 5 i think it was yep g1 to 5 all right yeah. and that's that's very similar to the solar scale uh, solar storm scale as well all right so in the history mm-hmm. 1859 
From August 28th until September 2nd, numerous sunspots and solar flares were observed on the sun. Just before noon on September 1st, the British astronomer Richard Carrington observed the largest flare, which caused a massive coronal mass ejection to travel directly toward Earth, taking 17 hours. Such a journey normally takes three to four days. Oh, so it's a, wow. so that's the information a, I have here. That's one of the one thing I was saying about earlier: how do you predict the power of a coronal mass ejection? Right. Yeah, and usually you can get it from a speed. So this thing traveled. This is like the F one car of CMEs because I don't think there's been ever one seen clocked going that fast before or since. Since not since then. No, that that was a big flare. I mean, that was a pretty epic event. This thing knocked out the internet of the day. The telegraph, yeah, yeah. telegraph operators were electrocuted. So this is how big this flare was. <laughs> wow. Awesome. This solar storm became known as the Carrington event and was the most powerful solar storm in recorded history. Aurora were seen around the world. Northern lights were reported as far south as Cuba and Honolulu. What? While southern lights were seen as far north as Chile. Also noteworthy were those over the Rocky Mountains that were so bright that their glow awoke gold miners who began preparing breakfast because they thought it was morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. People, well, it was like daylight out. It was like yeah. dawn was breaking. People, oh, these aren't the northern lights. This is the sun coming up over the horizon. People who happened to be awake in the northeastern U.S. could read a newspaper by the Aurora's light. Wow. Telegraph systems all over Europe and North America failed, in some case shocking telegraph operators. Telegraph pylons threw sparks and telegraph paper spontaneously caught fire. Some telegraph systems appeared in to continue to send and receive messages despite having been disconnected from their power supplies. I think everybody got 10 x-rays that day. Yeah. I don't think you need to be in a commercial airliner to get 10 x-rays on that day. And measurements of proton radiation in ice cores have shown evidence that events of this magnitude occur approximately once every 500 years. Whew. All right. Okay, we got about three hundred and fifty more to go. Sweet. I'm thinking what that would do to my computer and my massive porn collection. Like it would just wipe it out, and that terrifies me. That is a true danger. The truest danger of the solar storms. Yeah, I guess if that happened today, with how reliant we we are on on electronics, like and I mean, would it be like a massive storage? Yeah. Would it be like a massive EMP? Like would all sorts of systems fail? Oh yeah, and this is probably the most scary aspect of space weather. It basically hit the magnetosphere but at the magnetopoles it was positioned just right the magnetic field kind of blended with the earth's magnetic field in such a way that the perfect storm was generated this massive coronal mass ejection was able to punch our like invisible uh, force field the mm -hmm. magnetic global magnetic field and it was able to inject plasma deep into it then what happened the magnetosphere directed these high energetic particles, usually protons, and injected them into higher latitude regions. And generally speaking, the more powerful this coronal mass ejection, the further south you'll see the northern lights. Yeah. And this is exactly what happened in this Carrington flare event. But what happens when you inject the atmosphere with a shed load of, of energetic particles, it creates a global current running through the atmosphere. So basically it's a massive electrical current, mm -hmm. which in turn... Um, induces a magnetic field deep within the atmosphere where we live right. and it also o overloads um, power lines yeah. and in the case of this Carrington event it was able to overload telegraph poles which is uh, telegraph systems and if you can imagine what would happen in this day and age if something like that hit us, we got something called the internet that we kind of rely on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
if it knocked out power grids, so say if like the North American power grid got knocked out by one of these flares, the reason why it would get knocked out is because the substations would explode. Basically, they would be made useless. They'd overload, they'd die. Right. Guess how many replacements we've got for these substations? Not very many. We don't have any. This is like the lifeboats on the Titanic, not quite enough? Basically, yeah, we don't have any. We don't have a backup plan. That's the plan. With all this talk about deep injection and reaching out, it seems like when a sun and a planet really love each other very much, (laughs) the sun will inject radiation deep into the planet's core, and its baby is the northern lights. Right. (laughs) Only this one, this this particular event is probably the with the sun trying to go anal. Oh, <laughs> and those uh, are out. The, yeah. the one, no, no. The one positive thing about this, if in another 350 years this does happen again, is that at least it'll probably take out our robot overlords. There's that's always that. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping I dreamed I held you in my arms When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken And I hung my head and cried You are my sunshine, my only sunshine You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. I'll always love you and make you happy. If you will only say the same. But if you leave me to love another... You'll regret it all someday. You are my sunshine. In the news, I read something on astroengine.com just okay. a, just a few days ago about uh, solar tornadoes, and that article was written by Dr. Ian O'Neill. Ah. Oh. We should get that guy in the show. Dr. Ian, what can you tell us about solar tornadoes? These things have never been discovered before. They've never been observed. And basically, using the high-definition eyes of the uh, Solar Dynamics Observatory, the SDO, which is which was actually launched in 2009. So this is all very new, mm-hmm. uh, new piece of kit for us to look at the sun with. But in fact, there is a story behind this because my old research group based in Aberystwyth University were the ones that made the discovery. These tornadoes are... Solar prominences, we mentioned those earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And basically, for some reason, the conditions were just right for them to wrap plasma around uh, these magnetic field lines. And they started intensifying this like uh, vortex of plasma. Now, they, they resemble, they definitely resemble tornadoes that we have here on Earth, but they are completely different. I mean, these things are going fast. The, uh, the speed of the uh, the plasma going around these these funnels coming from the surface of the sun high into the corona, they are speeding at a rate of two hundred thousand miles per hour. So compared to like you know the ones on Earth which go like one hundred and fifty miles an hour, these things are a completely different monster. Plus they reach very high into the atmosphere of the sun. There are about how many how many Earth lengths? 
Oh, um, width-wise, you're talking five. Around five about five. Earth, the size of five Earth. Quintuple Just the, the width, size of but Earth. Just the but not the height. The height is even uh, even taller. The height is Wild. huge. I mean, these things um, reach up to, what was it, 120,000 miles into the corona. So these things are big. Of course, we haven't been able to see them before, and this is another neat trick of the, um, the Solar Dynamics Observatory. It's able to take images very, very quickly, because before we take one snapshot, and then right. you come back an hour later and take another snapshot. So you wouldn't be able to get these wonderful moving like streams of plasma. We wouldn't be able to track them. Whereas this time, you can see from this funnel that's kind of facing the camera, you can actually see these, uh, this plasma working its way around the funnel. Interestingly, they think that behind these vortexes, they may actually trigger coronal mass ejections. They may actually be the, the, mm. that trigger that the solar physicists have been looking for for all this time. Because we don't really know how they're launched. We don't know how they're triggered. We don't know what causes them. But now we've noticed these solar twisters that they may actually wind up the magnetic field in such a way that it actually triggers these events. Dr. Ian, you probably haven't listened to the podcast enough times to know that I'm going to TM Solar Tornado verbally while you're here, <laughs> and you may or may not in the years to come see a sci-fi channel TV movie come of this. Uh, solar uh, TM. Tornado. Consider it TM. Of course, the movie's <laughs> going to have to be called Solar Twister. Yeah, it'll, oh, no, be, no, it'll, be, the sequel, it'll, be, it'll be the sequel to Twister. No, I've already I've already worked on Ice Twister. Okay, so right. it has to be Solar Tornado. Mm. Unfortunately, and Solar Tornado it does sound cool. Mm. It is a cool That's true. thing. I think that Solar Twister is the natural progression from Ice Twister. <laughs> you could have Ice Twister but, versus Solar Tornado. No. Oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, I love the verses. I have, to have a feeling I know which one's going to win. The only problem is that somebody else has already TM'd Ice Twister, and it's not oh. me. Mm-hmm. Or how about plasma twister? Oh, okay. Because then that All covers right. a range of different plasmas. Ooh, and it could also it, it could also be made out of blood. <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> that kind of plasma. Yeah. I'm outclassed. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a solar system where the sun is made out of blood. Yeah. So the solar tornadoes may be the source of the coronal mass ejections, mm-hmm. but you don't know where the solar twisters are coming from. What what causes those yet? The physics behind them isn't that hard to comprehend because it is very similar to how tornadoes on Earth would form. It's basically a packet of air which kind of like collapses, all kind of um, solidifies into one point mass. And then it's almost like the uh, the figure skating analogy. So say if you've got a figure skater who's got her, she's spinning on the spot, she's got her arms outstretched. She right. brings them in and suddenly she speeds up. It's that classic um, physics um, physics discussion. So somehow on the surface of the sun, you've got this plasma which is being contained by this magnetic field. And so it's not hard to imagine that perhaps this magnetic field became compressed in some way. So the angular momentum of this plasma is intensified. So it's formed this wisping, very, very fast vortex right. which grew out of the out of the solar surface. Well, I think I know what's happening. I mean, that's, <laughs> yes. that's on the sun where they have the trailer parks. <laughs> Right, <laughs> twisters are naturally drawn towards their yeah. uh, natural enemy, the trailer park. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Is this evidence of, of trailer, <laughs> trailer parks on trailer on the trailer sun? trash on the sun? Yeah, this is uh, undeniable, incontrovertible evidence. Could be. Doctor Ian said it first here on Caustic Soda. <laughs> it's actually some really cool video uh, that we'll obviously post on the website causticsodapodcast.com. People yeah. should definitely go check it's it out. Amazing. It's pretty wild stuff. Uh, with the solar maximum coming up, is there anything that we should be watching out for? Yeah, basically, I've got this rule now that if if the sun 
makes any move. So if the sun farts, <laughs> yeah. we're going to report on it because people love it. I mean, right. it's like... Especially the farting thing. Yeah. Soda mania seems to be really picking up a notch. And people are genuinely interested. Now well, we've actually got the imagery to um, to show what's going on. Yeah. Well, especially... It's not just talk anymore. Especially if the headline is sun is farting. Yeah. The great thing is it can farts. light its own farts automatically. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. you automatically get the extra awesome. And yeah, we we just had a series of um, massive flares. Uh, 2012 is looking to be a really exciting year for space weather prediction because we're getting very good at predicting these these eruptions. Hopefully, um, all going well, we're not going to face like the end of the world because of all our electricity has been knocked offline um, because we are getting better at predicting it. And of course, if we see a coronal mass ejection coming in, um, unlike what happened in Quebec, Quebec in 1989, when and their power grid was knocked out. Now we can actually prepare. So when we see these coronal mass ejections coming, we kind of like put up the big energies. giant shield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, but no. I mean, you just all you do is just bring down the voltage across the grid, right. and then you kind of then have some give as to how much you know energy is imparted on that system. And hopefully, you have more than seventeen hours' notice. If we saw that kind of Carrington-sized event coming at us, I mean. I rather suspect we'd lose some satellites. I right. mean, it wouldn't go without damage. We'd be prepared, but you just don't know. Could I, I set up a Faraday cage around my porn collection so that it would survive <laughs> the EMP? Would that work? Because some computers come with Faraday, Faraday cage, cages. And I was received an email and somebody said the same thing. What about my computer? Obviously, he was worried about his porn collection. <laughs> yeah. so, yes. So he said, okay, so the solution is going to be, do I put my laptop inside my PC's Faraday cage? <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Now, are there any astronauts out there right now that should be wearing a little extra sunscreen? Or um, Generally, they are kind of protected. I mean, uh, the, the kind of scary stuff. the space station, right? Right now? Like- yeah, we've got six astronauts out there at the moment. Um, they're on the space station. I think it's three astronauts and three cosmonauts. Generally, they are protected. I mean, they are going to receive higher doses of uh, radiation, and there's a few medical things that happen to astronauts in space that could be caused by increased radiation. We don't, again, it's kind of like a it's a biological experiment going <laughs> yes. on there as we speak. So, uh, kudos, so gentlemen are, and ladies. The, the, although the Earth's magnetic field can extend around the around the International Space Station, it's very weak up there, and of course, there's no atmosphere to protect. Mm-hmm. So they have to, if there's a solar storm, they have to go into a protected area of the International Space Station. But generally, you know, it's just a fact of life. If you're an astronaut, you're going to have a higher dose of radiation. Well, let's go to pop culture. Who saw the movie, spoiler alert, Knowing with Nicolas Cage? Uh, I did. Oh, I loved it. I watched it, <laughs> I watched it last night until like three in the morning. Uh-huh. Uh, slept through some bits of it. <laughs> this is 2009. Uh, a time capsule containing a cryptic message about the coming apocalypse sends a concerned father on a race to prevent the horrific events from unfolding as predicted in this sci-fi thriller directed by Alex Proyas, Dark City. Time capsule? Yes. Yeah. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So it's been buried in the ground for like 40 years. That's a gimmick for yeah. the warning. Yes. That 40 years ago, people knew about it and then buried... No, the, one person it was, knew about it. It was a little girl who was having, like, um, visions. visions or some kind of psychic... And they never really explain how no. that, why that happens, but no. the girl... All the kids in the classroom are supposed to draw what they think the future will look like, oh. and then they put them in the time capsule, and then 50 years later, all the other kids at the school will get 
to, right. look, to pick out these drawings or whatever. Right. Instead of drawing, this little girl just writes a sequence of numbers. Which uh, Nicolas Cage decides is predicting all these hor- horrible events. Exactly. Okay. So he can find the date of a horrible event like as So there was a crazy little girl. Yeah. And her craziness set off this crazy man. But because it's a movie... It's right. It, here's the thing. The, the whole premise is like really supernatural, mm-hmm. but then the reason behind it is very sci-fi. So it's kind of this weird mishmash that doesn't really jive and it makes no sense. It is terrible. And if I didn't want to see it, it don't, the only reason I saw it is because it was the double header at the drive-in. They have drive-ins still? Oh, yeah. Houghton Langley. It's actually really cool. It was it was knowing and Wolverine. So oh uh, man, two great movies together. <laughs> well, the thing I'll give it, we were talked about on an earlier podcast about Roland Emmerich and how he shows these big destruction movies, mm-hmm. but never shows like the human cost. Never yeah. shows any people actually dying. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Knowing, um, one of the scenes is. Nicholas Cage is driving along and he's at the coordinates where the next event is supposed to happen. And this plane, plane crashes, crashes right yeah. behind him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and all, scary. all these people come out of the wreckage. They're on fire and everything like that. Yes. And, and uh, so there's a lot of yes. people who die in that one. And then later on, what's the next one after that? Oh, it's a subway train. Wasn't it's it? the it's subway, subway train. Ago, yeah. That one's even more gruesome. Like oh, the, well, they good sh- for them. Yeah. They sh- well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at least they show what's happening, right? Yeah. They, it's just not some abstract disaster right. idea. Yeah. Horrible yeah. things should be horrible. Yeah. And they show like POV but, from inside the train. You're looking at the windshield and all these people get splattered against the front and there's all this blood and stuff oh, like that. It, and, it was like from a technical perspective, it was really a difficult thing to accomplish and they did an amazing job. Yeah. But it's a terrible script and it's a terrible premise and it's terribly executed. And the reason we bring it up in the Sun episode. Yeah. Is because the final disaster... Well, you can see it in the movie poster, actually. <laughs> That's true. Because it shows the Earth, and then the bottom of the Earth is on fire. Is that there's basically this... I don't know if you would call it a massive coronal mass ejection, or just a flare, or what you would call it, but basically the Earth is... All life is burned away off of the Earth. <laughs> From the this the giant movie. solar yeah, event. Uh, when, when the movie started, you know, the whole premise of seeing the future, you know, it's, it's all very science fiction and all, all fun. I'm, I'm a big fan of science fiction, but I hate bad science fiction. I hate science fiction that is based on bogus science. That's, that's more mean, fiction than science. There's even some give, you know, I mean, there's certain movies that, uh, you know, people argue, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, all that. It's just, you know, crazy science, but it's not bogus science. It's not right. based on bad you know, doomsday theory that's horribly thought out. Mm-hmm. And and also, weren't aliens behind all of it as well? They kind yes. of threw yes. everything. They weren't. But they the weren't. Story. They didn't seem to be behind the solar flare, no. but they did save all the children. Well, some of the children of the from children. planet Earth. Yeah, at the end. Wow. Yeah, probably to take them to their own planet for food. Yeah, no, the solar flare thing that plays on the killer solar flare doomsday theory that right. kind of has been intensified this year. What with uh, December twenty first, twenty twelve, is the end of the Mayan calendar and all the crazy stuff. That goes with that you could do a very very good doomsday doomsday film just using science facts can you imagine if the sun unleashed this coronal mass ejection the size of the carrington flare you've got all these guys you know probably bruce willis is thrown in as well and they're warning about you know this impending doom but the satellite companies don't believe them right well you got you got some nice conspiracy stuff thrown in there as well but when this coronal mass ejection hits we're woefully unprepared it knocks out massive power grids you know power grids across the world can you imagine a world that's 
without power. Yeah, for like days or weeks or months. Yeah, no. I mean, it could even be years. I mean, just imagine yeah. that it could be a catastrophic failure of civilization. Yeah, and so, so basically the theory behind the whole um, the knowing thing was cities are going to burn, the whole planet's getting incinerated by a blowtorch. It just can't happen. The, the, the sun works by physics. There was no physics involved in the making of that movie. We have evolved within this radio, highly radioactive environment of the sun, and we seem to be doing pretty okay. Mm-hmm. And for the sun just to suddenly turn into this harbinger of doom was just ridiculous. In Roland Emmerich's 2012, like the mo- movie opens with them observing these like giant, these bigger than ever sun sun flares, and then they kind of like proceed to like ignore everything above the sun from that point forward. Just all this horrible yeah. stuff happens, and there's no science to back it up. There's nothing there. In 2012, I was actually hoping that they learned their lesson, but obviously they didn't. <laughs> it's Roland so Emmerich. He, went- he never learns his lesson. <laughs> he doesn't. Get- the movie costs. 50 million to make they made 187 on it 187 million yeah, yeah. so it doesn't exactly. matter how I mean, bad it was they made more than three times their and money. the thing was because he decided to use neutrinos as the harbinger of doom so basically the sun emitted a shed load more neutrinos than it would do normally and that went on to heat the core of the earth <laughs> so microwaves work Very right yeah interesting yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's go to the 2007 British science fiction film directed by Danny Boyle. Mm-hmm. Sunshine. Sunshine, yeah. Two th- the premise is, in 2057, with the Earth in peril from the dying sun, the crew is sent to reignite the sun with a massive stellar bomb. <laughs> starring the Scarecrow. Yeah. Captain America. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moira McTaggart. Uh-huh, yeah. And Sinestro. Oh, Yeah. Look at Do that. you guys know who those actors are? Yeah, it's uh, Mark Strong and Rose Byrne and... Uh, In Backwards Order. Uh, Chris Evans yeah. and... Uh, Cillian Murphy. Cillian Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. And also Michelle Yeoh. She didn't play any superheroes in she any was, movies that I could find. She was Yu Shu Lian in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, the plot does not revolve around the sun dying in the normal sense. This is not due for around five billion years. Uh, it has instead been infected with a cue ball, a supersymmetric nucleus left over from the Big Bang that is disrupting normal matter. This is a theoretical particle that scientists at CERN are currently trying to confirm and was one of the many contributions of the science advisor. Do you guys know who that science advisor was? Brian Cox. Wow. From Manchester University. (laughs) That guy normally seems reasonable. Uh, the film's bomb is meant to blast the cue ball to its constituent parts, which will then naturally decay, allowing the sun to return to normal. Okay, so what do you think about the science behind this, Dr. Ian? The, the most disappointing thing for me about this movie was, A, it was British. So I assumed it was going to be good. Danny Boyle, I like his movies. <laughs> yeah, Train so, Spotting and uh, yeah, Slumdog Millionaire. millionaire. And so go. I was dead excited to hear that he's done a science fiction movie. And to be honest, for the first hour, I loved it. Yeah. I thought the premise was great. I thought, you know, you're using some, you know, rather out there physics, but right. hey, that's science fiction. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, the sun could be dying because of this cue ball. I mean, whatever. The fact we're going to send a mission there. I mean, why you send mount a manned mission to the sun? <laughs> uh, you know, debatable. You yeah. know, why would you do that? Movies, uh-huh. movies about robots going to do things for us. Not as exciting. And but, it seemed yeah. like the movie was just a series of bad human decisions and mm-hmm. human incompetence. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. The second half of the movie became a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no reason. There was no. There was nothing else there. It no. turned into a it, zombie movie. It completely turned into like an entirely different movie. They just got one crazy guy killing people. It was like there yeah. was no need for this. No, absolutely. I mean, it could have been like saving a, humanity was good enough. Yeah, it could have been very like two thousand and one, and instead it like turned into a slasher flick, right? Exactly, exactly. And and the, the whole idea that you go crazy by looking at the sun too much. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I stay indoors now. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, the script underwent 35 drafts. Oh, that's always a good sign. And Danny Boyle found working on a sci-fi project so exhausting he vowed never to make another one again. So <laughs> Probably because he had to keep asking the scientific, science advisors what would actually make sense, whereas before, in everything else he's done, he can just like do what he wants to do, right? Yeah, he's just like, yeah, he'll crawl into the toilet and it will become an amazing underwater world, <laughs> yeah. and he'll find the thing that he wants, and then he'll crawl out, and it's the worst toilet in Scotland. Let's do that. Go. Let's film it. And yeah. now it's like, and we'll reboot the sun with a bomb. And the scientists are like, what? <laughs> Joe, you want to talk about Doctor Who? Yeah, there's uh, the sun plays a pretty big role uh, in the second episode of the series one. That would be the Christopher Eccleston, the kind of the Doctor Who reboot that happened in 2005. It's called The End of the World. I love this episode because it's kind of the one in Doctor Who that shows you we can tell any story we want. Mm-hmm. Anywhere, anyone we want. Because he's a time and traveler. Because he's a time traveler. He can go anywhere in, in uh, time and space. And I think there's something like five billion years in the future. I can't remember what the exact time is. But they step out and they're on this kind of space platform looking over the Earth. And behind it is a massive sun that's growing. And he explains, this is the day the Earth dies. The sun is about to expand and consume the entire earth. And she quite rightly says, well, doesn't, I heard about this. Doesn't that take millions of years? And he says, yeah, but, and then kind of hand waves it, you know, they've decided to keep the earth alive with all these shields uh-huh. for as long, kind of as a, as a, a historical park. Yeah. But this is the day when they're finally going to be like, okay, it's now too expensive to keep this old planet where humanity came from going. We're going to let the shields down. The, the earth's going to get consumed by the sun. And now the great and the good have gathered on this platform to watch the last days of the earth. And then the stories, of course, there's weird double crosses and things that go on on this platform. Uh-huh. But it's just uh, the, the scene at the very beginning of seeing this going on and showing that uh, there are times when this hero, that she says, so you're going to stop it, right? You're going to save the earth. He's like, no. There are times when <laughs> things have to die. And uh-huh. This is the Earth's time. Yeah, exactly. How does she suggest that Doctor Who save the Earth anyway? Hey. Oh, just like take it out of orbit. Hey, he can do anything. He's got his flashlight deal. Screwdriver. Yes, how you. dare you? Flashlight. <laughs> how, how dare you, sir? Yeah, we didn't really touch on uh, the life cycle of the sun. Uh, but uh, So how does that going to work? It becomes a red giant and then a white yeah. dwarf. Any of you guys watched uh, Babylon 5? Yeah, quite the a bit. The very final episode is the death of the Earth. And you see this super advanced human that's now energy. Yes. And so pretty much it's a similar kind of take on the Doctor Who thing where they watch the sun expand and destroy the Earth. Mm-hmm. And basically, yeah, when the sun runs out of fuel, the whole of the solar system is in for a rough ride because uh, it will blow up into a uh, into a red giant. It won't go supernova. It doesn't have that the, the kind of mass to go supernova. It's okay. going to have a very much more, you know, drawn out dramatic death very much drama queen death and <laughs> it's going to expand into this red giant and it's probably going to expand to the orbit of the earth whoa oh and then the outer layers are going to break then off. we'll it's know gonna... what the surface of the sun is we'll finally <laughs> figure yeah. that out we just got to wait another five and a half billion years uh-huh. and the most incredible thing every single part of this planet will eventually end up in the sun right. so when i tell people that you know, we are we are star stuff. You know, that, that's that's already um, something that's incredibly 
out there. You know, the fact that we are a product of supernovas and cores of sun. Right. Actually, uh, the components of our body comes from stars. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get your head around that. Then you suddenly think, okay, so what's going to happen to us in the future? We're well, go back to the stars. Swells, we go back into it. All, <laughs> yeah. all the stuff, all of us, we're going to end up back inside the stars. So we'd really, to be correct, it shouldn't be ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It should be star to star. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, screw exactly. you. I'm getting out of here, man. Yeah. I'm breaking free of this gravity well eventually. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah so that idea of the, the red giant, yeah, that's that's basically what's going to happen in about four to five billion years' time. And then what's be left behind is a white dwarf star. And we know that they exist for many, many billions of, of years. They actually think they, they may actually outlive the age of the, the universe. Oh. These white dwarfs are very, very stable. Right. So our sun will still be there, but it'll be a dead corpse, like shining brightly. I have a quote from Lawrence Krauss. Uh, I find it very inspirational. I like it. Who's I mean, Lawrence Krauss? Lawrence Krauss is a physicist. He says, uh, every atom in your body came from a star that exploded, and the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution and for life weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way for them to get into your body is if those stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Yes. Wow. I like it. Well, Dr. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, no, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And what are you working on these days that the people can uh, – I know that you are – are you the webmaster and controller of AstroEngine.com? Well, yeah, that's my personal project. Um, AstroEngine.com is just a blog. I, I started it probably, what, 10 years ago, and it's been going steadily. I need to do more writing on it. But uh, my day job is space producer for Discovery News, part of Discovery Channel. So oh. uh, I do everything that's space- – related you'll find on discoverynews.com that's awesome and i also have a an opinion piece on al jazeera english which was a surprise i got that this year so i'm i'm a columnist for them as well marvelous it's such a weird feeling to know you're alive it's such an awful feeling you're dying inside and when you wake up startled to say i hope i don't go crazy today it's such a bad feeling an ominous feeling a feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new And we'll have more gross facts for you. And you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while being mentally controlled by a parasitic barnacle. To comment on episodes, make a donation, or see show notes, links, and videos, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Subscribe to our Twitter feed at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com.